0: This is our Simon uh reading group. Um, we're continuing our reading of Individuation, Volume 2. Um, we are sort of just beginning the um, early modern section. So we finished the medieval section last time. Um, let me get the PDF open uh, because I didn't do that before. Um, yeah, so we saw um, some uh, different um, different versions of the the opposition between um, uh, different ways of defining the relationship of the human individual and and God um, in medieval philosophy. Uh, And then in particular, um, there were these uh, sort of late medieval uh, questions about um, the theory of motion and the the introduction of this impetus theory of motion, which is um, Sort of an alternative to the Aristotelian theory uh, and that um, that uh, defines the um, source of motion as a, an impetus or um, there's a sort of uh, transfer of what we would now call kinetic energy from the uh, the cause of the motion to the moving object uh, and and so this is opposed to the Aristotelian theory in which, there all, the motion has to always be brought about by something moving uh, in order for the motion to occur. Uh, and so the sort of the key um, difficulty for the Aristotelian theory was how to account for the motion of projectiles, like an arrow or a cannonball. Um, you you have to come up with some sort of complicated account where the, um, the air um, separates in front of the projectile and then um, pushes the projectile from behind or or something along those lines. Um, uh, Whereas on the impetus theory, uh, it's the the arrow or the cannon or whatever that um, imparts motion to the the object and the object continues in motion until um, air resistance and the force of gravity um, make it stop. Uh, And this also opened up the possibility of seeing the motion of the planets uh, and uh, of the solar system as being essentially the same uh, as the motion of a projectile. Uh, whereas for, for Aristotle and for the Aristotelian tradition, the motion of the planets is a, a sort of natural motion, whereas the motion of a projectile is a violent motion. Um, so it's a, a sort of a counter natural motion. Um, and, and so this impetus theory, it, it might seem like a sort of a technical point of um, you know theory of motion, uh, but it, um, it has uh, some pretty significant ontological consequences in terms of making the the superlunar world, the, the world of uh, the planets and the stars, uh, sort of uh, homogeneous with the sublunar worlds, the worlds of, uh, of uh, earthly motions. Uh, so there's just one sort of kind of motion that is the same uh, on Earth as it is uh, in the heavens, and and so the the whole universe is is sort of ontologically homogeneous it's all sort of on the same plane uh as opposed to in the aristotelian theory there's a a, a sort of ontological distinction between the sublunar world and the supralunar world uh so this we we talked about this in uh, in some detail last time uh and then we also saw um Meister Eckhart who was a uh i think a 14th century mystic um who um has this account of the unification of the individual with God, um, this uh, sort of, um, there's an account in which the individual, the separation of the individual from God is uh, a kind of illusion. Uh, and so by sort of grasping this illusion or or realizing the illusory nature of uh, individuality, the individual is capable of, of uh union with God, or um, sort of eliminating this illusion of separation from God. Uh, and Simondon argues that um, there's a kind of um, uh, analogy, I guess, between this um, this idea of the individual as being united with God uh, in uh, Eckhart's doctrine, on the one hand, um, and then the, um, the sort of... Um, impetus theory uh, or the the new physics that develops in in the 14th century that uh, likewise um because both of them um uh, have a sort of naturalistic bent in the sense that they they don't require um some sort of mediation between the individual and uh what the individual knows uh, uh, whether the mediation of the church uh in the religious sphere um or mediation through um the uh tradition in the sphere of physics uh so each of them has a sort of immediate knowledge uh of of the object known uh and so there's a kind of analogy even though they're very different of course between the mystical doctrine of Eckhart and the new physics of impetus that arises around the same time uh and then for some strange reason um Don skips over the Renaissance, um, so he doesn't talk at all about Galileo or about, uh, Giordano Bruno, who, uh, are also obviously very important in, um, sort of the transition away from the medieval Aristotelian worldview to the early modern, um, uh, Cartesian and later Newtonian worldview. Um, so he skips over the Renaissance and he goes, uh, he does this little transition section, uh, uh, into the 17th century. And so that's what we'll get to today.
1: I can read this section. Yeah. Uh, yeah. From the Renaissance to the 17th century, or I guess after, it's not itself, but starts afterwards. The problem of individuality appears in a new way in the 17th century. The spirit of individualism in the 16th century and the Renaissance comes to a close. Nevertheless, we do not find in the 17th century a return to a doctrine prior to the Renaissance. The individual always remains principle, to the extent that the individual is what is distinguished from any community, tradition, or de facto situation. But the individual is the principle of universality, the starting point and milieu of a constructive activity. It is no longer the individual qua particular being that that is a reality, but the individual grasped as human being. The earthly ideal of the honest man who is not offended by anything takes on significance here. The honest man is not particularly the court gentleman, the townsman, or the countryman. Even less is he the professional man. That is because these three particular aspects, which make man belong to what we call a social milieu, take away from him something of his universality. The same can be said for inner man and character traits. A given habit, a certain, a given character type, instead of accusing an individual nature, are defects that deprive this individual of an access to the universal. To be singularized or specified is to be deprived of universality. This search for universality at the level of the individual and through the individual can also be highlighted more positively by the creation of a parable de facto universality between scientists and the most distinguished minds. The correspondence between philosophers and scientists of the 17th century goes directly from individual to individual, external to these limited groups that constitute universities. As Emile Aya notes, the philosophers of the 17th century do not belong to any school, Bacon, Descartes, Hobbes, Spinoza, Malebranche, Leibniz, Locke are independent from the university. These men are well known by themselves and not as members of a group. One of the most res- remarkable representatives of this individual independence of 17th century philosophers and scientists is Marin Mersenne, who played a galvanizing role for his research before the, seven- before the existence of scientific media. Pascal says of him, quote, he provided the occasion for several wonderful discoveries that perhaps would not have occurred if he had not excited scientists, unquote. Mersenne made it possible for Descartes to preserve his solitude while remaining in communication with the best minds of the time. Difficulties were often proposed in the form of a problem, for example, the difficulties of geometry, and the responses were circulated by particular correspondences. Later, this function... Was fulfilled by scientific journals like the Journal des Savants and the Nouvelle de la République des Lettres, as well as the Memoire de Trévaux and the Acta Eruditorum. In the same way, the academies like the Academie des Sciences, the Academia de Lenchei, the Cimento, the Royal. Society of London, the Berlin Brandenburg Academy of Sciences and Humanities constitute societies that are essentially groupings of individuals who think and communicate their works and discoveries qua individuals, without there being a group opinion that const- constituting a dogma. The goal of these societies is to realize the universality of information, not to decide on what is true and false. The statutes of the Royal Society of London are quite remarkable in this regard. The society will not make its own will not make its own any hypothesis, any. This is a quote. Uh, Any doctrine on the principles of natural philosophy proposed or mentioned by any philosopher whatsoever, whether ancient or modern, unquote. And this is so as, quote, not to give as general certain thoughts which are particular to them, unquote. I guess I'll just read at the end of this page. Uh, This thought defines a universal condition of individuality. The individual is capable of universality, not in the empirical conditions of his existence, but in the exercise of his activity. The individual is universalized by his activity. The thinkers of the 17th century abandoned the dynamism of the 16th century and the Renaissance, but it seems that everything removed from the world is given to the thinking subject. This constructive border of universality indeed starts with the individual to such an extent that all objects of the world and their relations are positive as reconstructible by thought. If the dynamism of the 16th century is abandoned, this is because the original connection between man and the world, in the original connection between man and the world, the barrier and a link still remain. The apprehension of the object here is even more immediate than in the dynamism of the preceding age. The object is grasped as compenetrable to the technics, which is the rational reconstruction of the real and the extension of the creative work through self-aware human power. There's no longer a distinction between reason and intelligence. What can be thought is that which can be constructed or that which constructs. Um, yeah, uh, I, I guess I was a little bit confused by this insistence on The idea of the individual being individuated by connection to the universal, maybe in light of some of the stuff about medieval philosophy we were thinking, reading, where often a problem was being able to describe the particular, adequately describe or provide for the particularity of individuals where the only, the only reality or maybe the domain with the most reality was the specific. Um, So it seems like there's a kind of conflict or tension between the individual as individual and universal.
0: Right. I think, um, I think part of what Simondon sees as this transition from the uh, medieval uh, schema of participation to the uh, early modern schema of construction, which we'll see more on as we continue. um, I think part of what he, what he, this um, transition as containing or, or implying is that um, the individual uh, becomes the, the sort of principle in a different way uh, compared to how it was in medieval philosophy. So, yeah, you're right. In medieval philosophy, one of the sort of problems that uh, constantly recurs is how to Uh, have a intellectual grasp on the individual Uh, in particular if our knowledge is knowledge of universals uh, it's it's difficult to understand um, how exactly we can have knowledge of an individual like if we if we know um, if we know an entity because it's it's a horse and it's it's brown and it's you know etc all the different properties we can attribute to this entity um, are all universals Uh, and then uh, explaining how we can actually know this entity, this particular horse um, is is uh, sort of a difficult problem um, whereas in the the 17th century um, as, as Simon don is describing it here, uh, universality is a kind of um, uh, it's a universality of the subject in in a different way as opposed to um, a universality of knowledge uh, so it's it's because the subject, is not um, a particular is not sort of limited to a particular uh, sphere um, that the subject has uh, the capacity for universal knowledge and and so in particular um, the the subject should not be um, uh, like uh, a professional uh, who belongs to a, a sort of limited um, a limited sphere uh, whether it's uh, the profession of um, medicine or uh, law or, um, uh, you know, uh, serving in the court, for example, any of these sort of professions um, limit the sphere of action or the sphere of knowledge of the individual. And the individual should be, um, here, I think there's a, a bit of a translation issue because in in uh, so in so the translation, it says that the honest man, and that's sort of a literal translation of the honest man but I think the better translation would be something like a, a decent man or even a gentleman. Um, um, uh, there's this notion of, of the the gentleman as someone who is not sort of confined to uh, any one particular sphere of thought or action. Uh, and because of that, they can have knowledge without sort of the partiality that is uh, implicit in any of those particular spheres of action. And, and this was sort of the ideal of the, uh, these different academies of sciences that appear in in the seventeenth century in different countries—it's um, this idea that you know through this um, interaction of these uh, gentlemen who are not uh, sort of partial to any particular theory or any particular school of thought—the the this interaction will um, bring about the the. Um, will bring about a, a, a sort of approximation towards the truth um, or uh, by interacting with others who are not partial, you um, get closer and closer to the truth. So I think that this is sort of what Simondon sees as the, um, what's new about this uh, 17th century conception of the individual. It's this sort of non-partiality of knowledge is, is what is um, essential, essential to the uh, the universality of the, the subjects uh, in in the 17th century.
1: Thanks, that makes sense. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say about this section is we were talking before we started recording about the Solvay conference um, and the way that, that played out with the dominance of the Copenhagen interpretation but um, it seems like one of the things that Simon Van likes about these scientific societies here is that they are they are impartial in a way that maybe the uh, the the group that ended up uh, supporting exclusively the Copenhagen interpretation was was not in the um, early 20th century. This also makes me think of the you know his earlier comments about like the, the technician as the individual with direct knowledge that is not kind of socially mediated direct knowledge of the object.
0: Yeah, I think. Um the the comparison with the Solvay conference is interesting because um uh the the participants in the Solvay conference are are definitely not um bound to something like the this rule of impartiality um the so the the these um societies of this the 17th century um there's sort of a a distinction of levels of like the, at the level of the society as a whole, the society does not endorse any particular scientific or philosophical theory. Um, it, it's just sort of a um, a medium for transmitting uh, different um, opinions or different positions uh, and allowing them to sort of confront each other. Uh, and then at the level of, um, like there's, there's still sort of a, a space for schools to appear. Um, you know, different schools will propose different doctrines and you know argue for their position and try to convince others and so on um so uh it, it's not like the scientists of the 17th century are are sort of um, uh, uh, neutral on on different scientific questions um it's that the the society um, serves only as a, a sort of medium to transmit these different positions uh and then in in the 20th century like in the Solvay conference um there this role of the sort of media, medium of transmission is played more by um scientific journals and uh as opposed to something like this society um uh like the the there are of course you know the American Association of Physicists and, or what is it the American Physics Association I think is the, the name and, and you know other um you know institutions uh you know societies of scientists of various kinds that exist today. Uh, but I think they, they don't play exactly the same role that they did in the 17th century of um, sort of serving as the medium of transmission of information and, and uh, ideas uh, between scientists. Um, and then I think your your point about the, the technician is an interesting one too, because um, it's precisely the technician who is sort of um, uh, thought of in the 17th century as being um, like... Sort of emblematic of someone who is particularized who is not um who is not this sort of gentleman who can um, uh, have this impartial knowledge or, or non-partial knowledge um the the technician or, or someone who is sort of confined to a particular trade or a particular um, skill set is uh is someone who has only a partial knowledge they might have um you know detailed knowledge of uh metal working, for example but they won't know anything about um uh, chemistry or whatever other um, field of knowledge is uh, uh, is relevant to a particular question, um, and and so th- there was a sort of um, uh, devalorization of um, technical knowledge at the same time as uh, a, a sort of um, uh, as we'll see with Bacon, as when we get to that section, there's a kind of um, utopian idea of. Um, uh, how how scientific knowledge will allow for greater um, technical um, capacity to control nature. uh, um, But at the same time, the actual people who are involved in the technical knowledge of the time are sort of devalorized as being um, confined to a particular trade. So there's a a kind of um, tension, I guess, between two different aspects of technical knowledge, on the one hand, it sort of confines you to a particular trade and makes you um, partial in that sense. Uh, and then, on the other hand, um, it's sort of one of the the consequences of scientific knowledge that is um, uh, valorized by seventeenth century writers.
1: Thank you. Yeah, the, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and and so we see this um, like this this sort of criticism of partiality um, is is also um, tied to uh, the criticism of the university or, or the schools, as, as they would often uh, call them at the time. Um, uh, and so, as Simone Do uh, points out here, most of the um, sort of main philosophers that are still read today or, or who are um, still considered important today uh, were, were not members of the university. Um, they were um, sort of private individuals who uh, you know, did their researches and, and publications. Uh, outside of the university setting. And so uh, the the school, the, uh, the university was considered to be a sort of partial environment or a sort of partial, um, or, uh, sort of partial uh, uh, standpoint on knowledge in the same way as um, a technical specialization would be. Uh, so um, being a, a scholar uh, in a university was uh, a kind of um, limiting... Uh, approach to knowledge or a limiting position to uh, to reach knowledge as opposed to being a private gentleman who, um, you know, conducts their own researches and and does, uh, does their own uh, investigation of, of different scientific questions. Okay. okay, so let's go on to the next bit of this section. I think, uh, yeah, I'll read the rest of the section. It's just over a page. Okay. Operation has the value. Oh, sorry, I missed the sentence. Um, To construct is to arrange and to arrange is to construct. Operation has the value of being. It not only modifies being, it constitutes being. The individual is the being who can construct or reconstruct himself. Action upon oneself is no longer conceived as a purification or a sacrifice, but as a construction that takes stock and takes back up reality initially given as a whole in order to rearrange it and complete it. The activity of constructive discovery that the Renaissance has mainly dedicated to the world turns back toward itself in the 17th century, but the self is not conceived as something to be explored. It is grasped as a reality to be constructed or reconstructed according to norms elaborated in the most fruitful rational techniques out of mathematics applied to mechanics. What the 17th century discovers in the sciences is that which is constructible according to technical schemas, the type of intelligibility is that of a mechanical functioning in which there is no anteriority of the whole with respect to the parts. The order of the parts is what gives to the whole the functioning that characterizes it. The functioning is a relation or ensemble of relations. Structures are mechanical structures, not hierarchies, hidden forces, desires, or even analogies. A relation between sign and signified thing. The individual is a being without subjectivity, or at least without profound intimacy. Essence becomes activity. Relation is a bundle of operations, and structure is a bundle of relations. Certain difficulties undoubtedly persist in this endeavor. The human individual is not simple, and not everything within him is constructible to the same degree. One of the fundamental relations that is revealed in him is imposed as a given reality that does not allow him to be penetrated directly by any schematism. The intelligibility of the human individual has been obtained only by supposing the distinction between soul and body. The whole irrationality of the given has been repressed in this obscure relation which, that is not a bundle of operation. Therein lies the paradox of individuality in the particular form that it takes in the 17th century. The individual becomes something constructible and consequently rational, on condition that one supposes realized a certain discontinuity that has broken individual unity and is not constructible in any way, since it supposes a theory of being that is, in, that is different from a theory that makes rational construction possible. It in fact supposes that there can be relation across an ontological discontinuity, a bisubstantial heterogeneity, whereas every rationalism of the constructive order depends on the hypothesis of the continuity and homogeneity of being. Nowhere is this paradox more visible than in Descartes, but the difficulty he presents is so massive that none of the great systematic thinkers of the century escape his domination. Uh, I think that should be escape its domination. Uh, In this age, the schema of participation is abandoned so as to think the individual. The schema of construction replaces it and comes up against the same fundamental problem. Um, Yeah, so this is a good question from Angus in the chat here. Is rational constructability supposed to apply to extension here and and not thought? Um, I think the idea is um, uh, that both extension and thought should be something constructible uh, or um, it's insofar as something is constructible that it can be understood. uh, And and so um, in the realm of extension, uh, this means that you focus on Simple machines uh, and and mechanics uh, as um, you know, mathematized mechanics. You know, in the post Galilean tradition, um, is is sort of the core of science. Um, and then in the realm of thought, it means that um, you have to uh, you have to have uh, you know, as we'll see with Descartes, you have to be able to um, construct a chain of reasoning uh, that is evident at every step. Uh, and so you start from something immediately. Uh, or intuitively um, obvious uh, and then you sort of proceed through reasoning from one one, uh, item or one uh, object of thought that is immediately obvious to another that is sort of has a derived evidence or derived um, uh, obviousness Uh, and so uh, I think each side of of the opposition between extension and thought is supposed to be um, constructible uh, or what we can know in each of these domains is the constructible. Yeah. So this, um, so in this last bit, um, Simon Don points to the relationship between thought and extension, or in particular between the body and the soul in the human being, as being sort of the the core problem of seventeenth uh, century thought. Uh, and and so he says that everything that's sort of irrational or um, obscure or hard to understand is kind of uh, bundled together into this one. Um, sort of mysterious relationship between the body and the soul uh, and, and so this is uh, especially in the Cartesian doctrine um, you know a, a central point of difficulty uh, and, and Descartes um, I think uh, I think this is probably a, um, a merit of his is that he um, acknowledges that this is a, a difficulty um, and he says that actually the union of the body and the soul is something that surpasses human understanding it's uh, you know uh, God brings it about through an individual sort of action of will uh, and um, it's something that humans can't understand uh, and and so it's um, you know Dickhaft is is honest about the fact that this is something um, obscure in his theory uh, and um, he doesn't sort of pretend that that it's something uh, uh, obvious or something comprehensible. Uh, but this is sort of a not just a, a Cartesian problem, but um, a, a sort of 17th century problem uh, in general. Um, and you know, the various uh, different thinkers of the 17th century um, proposed different solutions or different interpretations of how the body and the soul interact, uh, or what um, what the relationship is between body and soul. Uh, and and so this is sort of the core. of obscurity where each side uh, the uh, uh, extension and the human body are in principle understandable through uh, mathematical mechanics even if you know the the details of how the human body works are not fully understood Um, and the soul is understandable through um, rational uh, constructability in the same way so you you can sort of perform these uh, chains of reasoning but it's the interaction or the point of connection between the two that remains obscure. Uh, and so I think we can compare this to um, Timondon's analysis and criticism of the hylomorphic doctrine in uh, volume one, where he he argues that um, the the weakness or the difficulty in the hylomorphic doctrine is precisely the interaction between form and matter. Uh, there's this obscure zone in the middle where the, the form of a brick sort of uh, is supposed to be imposed on the the mass of clay, but the actual interaction between the form and the the clay is kind of left out of the theory. And we can see likewise here that um, the soul and the body are each sort of understood in their own terms, but the actual interaction of the two is something that um, has to be sort of filled in by a miracle or um, is kind of left as this obscure zone.
1: I can read uh, Francis Bacon.
0: Um, yeah, how, how long is it? Uh, I think it's, yeah, let's, let's nice. just
1: read a page or so, because it's about two and a half pages. Okay, Francis Bacon. With Bacon, the constructive intention stands out. Oh yeah, God, there are like 15 Latin titles here. <laughs> the constructive intention stands out in the Temporis Partus Masculis Sive de Interpretatione Naturae. The fifth and sixth parts of the treatise reveal how one can descend back from the laws of the sciences to the actions that these knowledges allow to exert over nature. The study of Phenomena Universi makes it possible to found Scientia Activa. Between the first study, which is the Historia Naturalis Sive Experimentalis ad Condendum Philosophium, and the Philosophia Secunda Sive Scientia Activa, is inserted the Scala. Intellectus sive filum labo- and the prodromi sive anticipationes philosophiae secundae. This plan is already that of the Cartesian reform, albeit without the cogito. Uh, Bacon wants to transform human life by ensuring the mastery of man over nature. Descartes will add the mastery of man over himself by establishing. Continuity between the techniques that guarantee mastery over nature and those that make it possible to arrive at self-mastery in the unity that wisdom is. In this sense, technical objects are not conceived as different from natural beings. Natural history is divided into three parts. Historia, Generationum, Praetor Generationum, and artium. Study of Monsters and techniques was already part of the encyclopedia elaborated by Pliny, but unlike Bacon, Pliny does not assert that monsters and techniques reveal the same forces as those hidden in natural generations. Natura omnia pregit. nature rules all things. Man does not create any force that is not in nature. he creates new con- he only creates new conditions. Uh, sorry. Was, uh, human operation is the value of being. It is natural and enters the universality of natural actions. There is no longer a fundamental distinction between the theoretical order and the practical order. Practical operations are not merely part of the operations of nature. They are capable of being considered as objects of theoretical study. It is thereby understood why there is continuous continuous passage from the first philosophy to second philosophy. Uh, It is thereby understood why it is possible without doing harm to first philosophy to, quote, call back the natural philosophy from the thousand... Forms of speculation to the importance of operative practices. Bacon turns away from the sciences of argumentation because these sciences are enclosed in the specialty of a method or a vocabulary. Scholastics Scholastics, enclose their souls in Aristotle just as they lock their bodies in their cells. These specialists take refuge in uh, their discipline and are under the illusion that their favorite science contains all things. Uh, Maybe I'll stop there.
0: Yeah, that's a good place to stop. Um,
1: yeah, so bacon
0: um, is um, one of the sort of core ideas that Simon Don brings out here is the um, uh, use of knowledge. Uh, knowledge should um, bring about power over nature. Um, uh, so our, our scientific knowledge of the world should allow human beings to control nature uh, and uh, you know, serve human ends. Uh, and this is um, certainly a different conception of knowledge compared to Aristotelian and medieval um, conceptions of knowledge. Um, so Aristotle, um, you know, famously argues that uh, the speculative life is the the best life for the human being. Um, so and and speculation or um, uh, theory, uh, like the term theory, um, uh, you know, the Greek word is is a word for seeing. Um, uh, so it's a it's a kind of um, I don't want to say passive operation because it's something that the subject has to do um, to theorize, but it, it, it's a, a kind of non-transformative knowing. It, it knows the world through seeing the world as it is um, as opposed to sort of bringing about transformations in the world. Uh, and this is sort of the um, the conception of knowledge that uh, is sort of predominant throughout the medieval period is that um, knowledge is a, a primarily a speculative um, activity, whereas Bacon wants to sort of return from this speculative uh, conception of knowledge to a, a practical conception of knowledge. So we, we know something insofar as we're capable of using that um, aspect of the world to bring about effects that are beneficial to uh, achieving particular aims that we might have. Uh, and the other bit that Timondon brings out here is um, um, that sort of homogeneity that uh, we talked about a little bit in connection with the impetus theory. Um, So likewise, here, there's a sort of homogenization, I guess, of the natural world. Um, uh, So um, uh, everything is subject to the same laws of nature, uh, and and that includes human um, uh, technical arts, technical skills, uh, our, our technological um, productions are governed by the laws of nature and so our uh, our knowledge is applied in in our technical um, uh, productions and so this is another um, sort of um, key point in in bacon that is uh, opposed to the medieval understanding of of knowledge.
1: I read uh, the question concerning technology a couple of months ago um, and you know, the, Obviously Heidegger argues that there's this new kind of mode of being that arises in the somewhere in like the early modern period, which entails this understanding of nature as something to be mastered, which I think he typically, at least as I understand it, kind of associates with Descartes. But maybe on Simonon's reading, Bacon would be a, a more appropriate starting point, although I think he also thinks that this relationship of mastery, you know, towards from going from the human to nature is kind of reversible
0: yeah we find um similar statements in Descartes um to the effect that um, knowledge should bring about mastery over nature um so there's a a, a continuity from bacon to to decaft they they have um similar conceptions of the relation between knowledge and the natural world um but yeah Simon makes the um remark here uh, if I can just find it um um yeah so the um in in Descartes what's different is that there's a, a not only a knowledge a, a mastery of uh, the human being over nature through knowledge, but also a mastery of the human being over um, over themselves through knowledge. Um, so he has this treatise on the passions uh, that um, sort of articulates a theory of how uh how the human being is affected by by other entities and um, you know suffers passions like jealousy or anger or whatever, um, as a result of being affected in various ways by different entities and uh, um, how how um, the rational being can sort of um, control those passions and um, uh, sort of preserve the their dispassionate intellectual nature um, but I think yeah, I think uh that. The conception of of nature as something to be mastered uh, is something we can uh, attribute both to Descartes and to Bacon. Um, They they both have a a similar conception uh, and it's through both of them, I think, that it it comes to be um, a a predominant conception in uh, the Western world of the relationship between knowledge and nature. And one other point, too, um, is uh, we see here um, right at the the top of 558 um, how Bacon criticizes the scholastic doctrine as being a, a partial, a, a sort of partiality um, that uh, the, the um, scholars in the schools in the Aristotelian tradition are sort of um, <clears throat> locked up into uh, one particular doctrine and uh, are not capable of you know, serving as the sort of universal subject that is uh, that Bacon uh, thinks is is required to have knowledge of the natural world, uh, and so this is um, sort of calling back to the point that Simon was making in the uh, introduction to this section uh, or the transition to this section uh, about how the the gentleman is a, a kind of universal subject who is not. Um, uh, enclosed into the partiality of a particular school.
1: seems like Bacon would be, Bacon seems like a kind of, I heard that the Copenhagen school is referred to as like the shut up and calculate way of thinking about complementarity or, you know, wave particle relation. And it seems like Bacon has a similar kind of practically oriented and uh, attitude that is somewhat hostile to, to just pure theory.
0: Yeah. And this also manifests in his um, epistemology, as we'll see a little bit, um as we continue, because Bacon has a, a purely inductive epistemology. He thinks that you just sort of uh uh you know conduct a bunch of experiments and um the true account is, is sort of um forms uh automatically just by you know observing multiple different experiments uh and and so he doesn't have any um place in his epistemology for uh theory construction of like you know developing an account uh, uh of you know how this phenomenon is produced. It's it's just sort of an automatic process of, of um, producing the the um grasp of the phenomenon through repetition of multiple different experiments. Uh so yeah there's a definitely an anti-theoretical um uh um sort of bent to to Bacon's thought. Okay, uh so let's go on to the next Bit. um Yeah, I think I'll, I'll read the rest of this section because it's a bit more than a page. um Let's see, where are we? Right. The sterility of dogmatic specializations is explained by this enclosure. Sterility is a sign of the unreality of thought. Scholastic logic is sterile, like a virgin consecrated to God. It produces nothing. In its isolation, the mind can only produce distinction upon distinction. In this way, isolated man possesses nothing but intellectus cv permissus, the intellect left to itself. What Bacon seeks is operative fruitfulness, and he thinks that he can find it only in experiment. He remains, quite indif- he remains quite different from Descartes by not discovering a condition of fruitfulness for the intellect of CB permissus, or rather by not distinguishing uh, inventive and synthetic deductive labor from simple logical analysis. But the intention is the same, to refuse the fruitlessness of pure formalism. It is up to the individual being to not let himself become locked into the illusion of a, complete, a completed dogma like the scholastics and to go, for Bacon, toward experiment and, for Descartes, toward constructive deduction. Nevertheless, Bacon is still much closer to the Renaissance than Descartes. For Bacon, the dynamism in the world is found deposited in the human being, but it still partially remains deposited in the world, such that, in experiment, a certain relation always remains maintained between the individual and the world. Bacon ignores the inventive capacity of deduction. In this sense, he is the pioneer of this confidence in the capacity of the individual being that will be found in Descartes. He, did not yet, he does not yet have the methods that will fertilize and validate the confidence in this capacity, but he has faith in this force, and his intention will be pursued by Descartes with new means. Bacon has not sufficiently discovered the methods of universality to be able to fully justify the confidence in the individual who invents. In a domain of 17th century thought, the absolute individuality of thought can only be discovered with the universality of method. The paradox of individuality seeking itself through the awareness of its means of action upon nature is revealed in Bacon through the twofold appearance of man's relation to the world. Natura non vincitur nisi parendo, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. Furthermore, this omnipotence of creative man is not expressed by an individualist ethics, but by a theory that subordinates the good of the individual to the good of society of which he is a part. The sovereign good must not be sought in the tranquility of the individual's soul, but in the active good radiating out from his works. The science of man ends with a politics distinct from morality, politics which is above all a doctrine of the state and power founded on facts according to the spirit of Machiavelli. Ultimately, this quest for universality is explained in physics by mechanism, which Bacon uses at the end of induction to discover the explanation of the properties of a thing in the nature of a, of a phenomenon. It is the latent schematism that explains the properties of a body. Everything qualitative and connected to the particularity of a given body in a determined circumstance is thereby eliminated. The essence of each thing is in a permanent geometrical and mechanical structure that is common to several beings and to all beings or phenomena with the same properties. It is the community of actions that allows us to consider phenomena as identical. There is no participation, but solely identity in reality, i.e. in structures that produce a given function, a given operation. Universality is in the operation and the structure that conditions it, not in particularity. Even the study of final causes is much too external to the physical being and remains the sterile virgin that Bacon indicates. The physical being is itself only by having a structure in which everything that could designate it as a particular being disappears. The same simultaneous presence of the extreme aspects of individual reality is exhibited in Bacon's mechanism. This quest for universality is still exhibited in the manner in which Boyle, continuing Bacon's thought, critiques Descartes' mechanism as overly particular. Quote, the mechanical explanation that Descartes gives to qualities depends so much on his particular notions of a subtle matter, of globules of the second element, and other similar things, and he has interwoven these notions so much with the rest of his hypothesis that one can hardly make use of it unless one adopts his philosophy in full, Unquote. Boyle, on the contrary, finds a more perfect universality in uniquely experimental considerations, i.e. in the mathematical science of machines, which allows us, quote, to apply pure mathematics to the production or modifications of bod- of movements in bodies unquote right so here um we see a little bit about what i was uh mentioning earlier about this uh purely inductive um epistemology in bacon uh so there's no role for the intellect uh left to itself for um uh theorizing or for deductive um reasoning in in science uh, it's only uh, through experiments and through um, sort of repeated um, uh, observation of phenomena that that the scientists can uh, come to a grasp of the phenomenon and an understanding of the phenomenon that allows for um, mastery over nature and uh, uh, there's no place within this theory for um, uh, uh, sorry within this account of of knowledge for theorizing or for um, uh, for deduction. And uh, this, this um, sort of privileging of observation um, also goes along with the um, um, sort of uh, desire for universality as the last bit of this um, section indicates. So um, the criticism that, um, so Boyle is a sort of Baconian um, in, in the sense that he criticizes Descartes for um, producing a theory that you have to sort of accept as a whole or reject as a whole. So um, Descartes' explanation of various phenomena is such that you you can't um, you can't really uh, accept the explanation of uh, that he gives of of the formation of a rainbow or the the operation of the human heart or whatever uh, physical phenomenon. Um, you can't accept that explanation unless you sort of take on the whole apparatus that that Descartes proposes um, his, his theory of physics with uh, the subtle matter and the different types of particles that interact with each other through um, mechanical means and, and so on. Um, and so uh, th- this theory, this Cartesian theory is um, a sort of partial theory. It, it makes you sort of uh, it confines the scientist or the philosopher into one particular doctrine. Um, as opposed to um, a more sort of liberal conception of mechanical philosophy that allows for explanations of phenomena that you can accept or reject sort of one at a time and not be locked into one particular one particular philosophical doctrine, um, and, and then you can um, you can investigate each phenomenon independently of the others.
1: Uh, in this part of the section you just read, the Simodon seems to suggest that um, it's somehow it's Bacon's uh, emphasis on experiment that keeps him from uh, falling into kind of pure bisubstantiality in the way that Descartes will. Maybe that's something that's only possible for a uh, like deductive method as opposed to an inductive one. There's still kind of a connection to the, the world and Bacon in a way that there isn't in Descartes.
0: Yeah. So Bacon has. Um, <clears throat> uh, so Simon Dome points out that Bacon is closer to the Renaissance than than Descartes, is. and I think what he has in mind is that for Bacon, um, material entities or, or or matter as such um, has uh, has active powers. So there's um, you know heat and uh, heat is a is a capacity to um, warm other objects. Right. Um, anything hot has has the power to heat other entities um and uh you know weights and uh various chemical properties all all of these properties of of matter are um are active powers that that um material bodies have for bacon uh whereas for descartes its um matter is is equal to extension it's just this sort of inert um uh geometrical entity that um, it only acts on other entities through contact uh, and it, it has no sort of inherent powers of its own. Uh, and so um, the Baconian theory of knowledge, uh, this inductive theory of knowledge, uh, is a sort of extension of this conception of um, material objects as having power. So um, the sort of dynamism of material objects uh, includes this sort of dynamism of. Uh, knowledge of those material objects, uh, so it, it's uh, like the idea of um, uh, a magnet or whatever um, has dynamic properties in the same way that the magnet itself has dynamic properties, and uh, and so the um, just through observation and experiment by having this um, experience of these phenomena uh, sort of accumulate, they interact with each other and bring about um the mastery over that phenomenon in the human mind um and so there's no need for something like a a deductive theory that would um sort of bring about that motion and interaction of ideas like there is for Descartes uh it there's a a sort of internal dynamism of the ideas of entities because those entities are dynamic uh in themselves uh and so I think that's sort of what Simoneau has in mind when he talks about it, Bacon being closer to the Renaissance.
1: Thank you. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. The um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, there's an echo here. Um, yeah, the, the uh, mechanical philosophy um, consists to a large extent in trying to explain these um, powers of material objects in mechanical terms. Uh, but there's like a sort of, um, I guess, a, a difference in emphasis between Bacon and, and Descartes. Uh, in that Descartes wants to sort of reduce all of these material powers to um, to uh, motion of extended uh, objects of uh, of matter conceived as identical with extension, um, and and he ultimately thinks that all the powers you know heat and color and taste and uh, all these other properties that uh, material objects have are are sort of um, uh, are secondary qualities that they. Uh, They only show how the object affects our body. They don't, uh, they're not um, properties of the object themselves. So entities uh, in themselves don't have a color or a taste or anything. It's only uh, color and taste are um, effects of various bodies on the human body that the soul um, perceives. Uh, Whereas for Bacon, uh, even though he wants to use mechanics and mechanical explanation to uh, achieve a grasp of natural phenomena. He doesn't want to um, sort of reduce the powers of material entities to uh, a purely mechanical operation. He he wants to um, uh, understand those powers of material entities uh, sort of uh, in mechanical terms, without uh, without that reduction or without saying that those powers are illusory or are only um, a result of uh, of the action of the entity on the human body. OK, um, the section on decaf is pretty long. Uh, I don't know if you want to start it today. We won't, we won't be able to finish it today, but um, do you want to start it today uh, and then finish it next time? Or do you want to see if we can get through the whole thing next time?
1: Uh, sorry, let me just maybe we sh- You want to start it today, because I think it, it might be longer than we can get through in a single session. Maybe even if we just get a couple pages into it.
0: Sure, yeah, let's do that. Okay. okay. Do you want to read the first uh, page or so with
1: them? Uh, yes. Um, Descartes. We also find in Descartes the, quote, project of a universal science that can elevate our nature to, the, to its highest degree of perfection. Unquote. But a new source of universality is found in the deductive method that does not require the individual to resort to experiment and does not force his thought to obey nature to dominate it. Descartes realizes an absolute independence of the individual being. So, as to be able to attain the condition of universality in this independence. The individual gesture attains to the universal when the conditions under which it is accomplished are conditions of universality. These conditions are the conditions of certain knowledge, certain knowledge, through the universality of the negative proofs of the validity of knowledge. The universal is that which of the individual being has resisted the progressive ordeal of doubt. If we study how doubt is organized, we see that it proceeds from what is particular, personal, to the generality of concepts, and ultimately to the universal and necessary knowledge of mathematical notions and of demonstrations or operations. Doubt is possible on all these levels, but in order for it to manage, to become established, arguments of increasingly painstaking elaboration must be put forth. Doubt is even applicable to the necessary deductions and operations of mathematics. But it is singularly and paradoxically held in check when thought finally grasps as ultimate reality that of the being who thinks. The individual being is rediscovered at the end of the progress in methodical doubt, but under conditions that are totally different from those of the first grasping of the individual being by himself. The first grasping was one in which, at the end of the first meditation, Descartes wondered if we could believe, believe in the existence of the body proper. The illusions, dreams, proprioceptive hallucinations of madmen, prohibited trusting in this feeling of the existence of the body at this stage. And the second meditation is the individual being insofar as he thinks that is grasped as object of reflexive thought. However, like Kant in particular, it could be said that the cogito indeed makes it possible to grasp the existence of a thinking activity, but not to individualize it by giving it a personal subject. The eye of the cogito would merely be the would be merely the form of all judgment, and not the reality of an individualized personal being. Can this operation of the cogito is be considered to reveal an impersonal activity? Descartes, in fact, envisions the problem of the permanence of thought. Quote, I am, I exist, that is certain, but how long? Unquote. Yet he does not seem to envision the personal character of thought as a question distinct from existence. It is as if the thought. Discovered in the kogito, didn't need any individuation because it is already an individuated being from the outset. This thought is an individual being due to the negative character of the ordeal. The kogito remains faced with the evil genius who guarantees that we are wrong every time we judge. I am for this judgment to be false when it is grasped as certain. There must be a being who is distinct from the one bearing judgment and who is more more powerful than him who makes him uh, who makes him be wrong every time he judges but then the subject who judges concerning his own existence and who feels the evidence of his judgment every time he thinks must be substantially distinct from the evil genius. If not, he would know that he were deceived if he were to himself his own deceiver. If, by contrast, the evil genius does not exist, then the judgment is true. Yeah, I don't know. It's, It's, I mean, it seems like a lot of what he says at the beginning of this section is... The way that he talks about this is going to be substantiated later on by the way that he talks about the operation of doubt and um, doubt as thought taking itself through its object.
0: Yeah, there's um, uh, this, this notion of doubt is sort of the key um, uh, innovation that Descartes brings into philosophy, um, because um, in ancient philosophy and medieval philosophy, there's... Um, there's definitely there. There is a, a skeptical school in uh, in ancient Greece that um, uh, you know argues that we don't have knowledge uh, through the senses or through reasoning, and and you know uh, try to cultivate an indifference of opinion uh, in opposition to all the philosophical schools. Uh, but this skeptical school is kind of marginal in the sense that um, other schools don't really feel. Um, like the the need to refute skepticism or to concern themselves with skepticism, um, but what we find here with Descartes is that um, the uh, this doubt or overcoming doubt uh, is sort of uh, a core piece of what philosophy does, uh, and and so in the Meditations, um, um, there's this um, sort of uh, intellectual progression from uh, Doubting the senses to um, doubting mathematical truths, uh, and then you know you arrive at the question of whether one actually exists or not. Um, and it's at that point that um, the cogito intervenes, uh, and and then everything else is sort of reconstructed on the basis of the cogito. Um, and and so it's this uh, conception of doubt uh, sort of progressively extending its reach across our intellectual. Uh, activities, and then uh, the sort of reverse order, once you reach one point that is uh, uh, indubitable, that is not subject to doubt, um, that's sort of the new um, elements in in Descartes' philosophy.
1: Um, I've been taking a class on Derrida recently, just like another kind of intro class, but we reading parts of, of grammatology, and we read the supplement section and this is kind of an aside, but I, I think you could um, you could argue that the the cogito as a substance is something that needs the it needs kind of the evil genius as the supplement because otherwise you can't really go from the activity of doubt to the idea that there is a thinking thing behind the activity that persists through time. But as Seam is arguing here, there's a if you have this presupposition of the evil genius, um which must be distinct from the subject that thinks, then that kind of shores up the substantiality of the, the thinking subject.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, because, yeah, so Simondo here, um, he sort of alludes to Kant's criticism of uh, of this, the cogito. Uh, so Kant argues that um, in the cogito, what we uh, have knowledge of is just the the unity of consciousness or the unity of the subject. Um, so Um, there's a there's a sort of um, when we judge you know I think the there's a the I that is thinking is a sort of formal principle of unity of consciousness uh, as opposed to something substantial Uh, and and then so there's a what he calls a paralogism of reason um, when you sort of reason on the one hand about the formal unity of consciousness and then you sort of pass um, without noticing it or without um indicating it from this formal unity of consciousness to the substantial um reality of uh the subject and the subject as a, a distinct substance um that uh in which thinking inheres. Uh so that's that's the Kantian criticism that uh uh I think is sort of underlying that that uh comment. Um um because yeah so as as Simono reconstructs the argument here um there's a, a sort of the role of the evil genius is to um, um, uh, sort of uh, make this substantial reality of the the subject um, evident or um, to bring about the substantiality of the subject. Uh, so in the cogito, we have knowledge of um, the existence of the entity that thinks. so when whenever I think um i think or whenever i think i'm i'm doubting or whatever um i i exist um as long as i think uh as long as i'm thinking um but the question is whether there's a a sort of substantial reality of the thinking entity from one episode of thinking to the next and uh whether there's an identity across one episode of thinking to the next and so on um and so, in what the evil genius argument does is to indicate that um, the the thinking subject or the thinking being has to have substantial reality uh, distinct from the evil genius. If even if even if the evil genius is capable of bringing in, bringing about the fact that I um, make a mistake every time that I judge. Uh, so every time that I you know try to add two plus two equals four, I, I get the wrong number, or every time I Try to think um, whatever you know, the most obvious proofs are I, I make a mistake because the evil genius um, sort of forces me to. Um, but even in this scenario, uh, the cogito remains valid because um, if uh, if the evil genius is capable of um, making it such that I um, make a mistake in judging that I think, um, then the ego genius has to be uh, a distinct entity from me, a, a distinct substance from me, um, and so I, the thinking entity, has to be a substance, uh, and and so this is how Descartes passes from the purely formal unity of the I think to the um, the substantial unity of the uh, thinking thing, the race cogitans, um, and and so this is sort of the the key points of. Um, transition from the formal to the substantial. And and so yeah, I think um we can understand this evil genius as a kind of supplement in that sense. Um it's it's something that um sort of intervenes as this moment that has to disappear in order for the whole conceptual apparatus to actually work. Thank you.
1: Uh that makes sense.
0: Um okay so let's yeah I think that's good for the section that we just read. Um Let's go on to the next page or so, um, so I can read this bit. Um, right. I think we're right at the bottom of five hundred and sixty, if I remember correctly.
1: Uh, yeah. Thus the uh, cogito. Right.
0: Okay. Thanks. Thus the cogito is valid either if it is false in itself, because it must exist to be able to be rendered false by the action of a substantially substantially distinct being, or if it were true, if it is true due to its direct content. In the first case, it is the sum, the sum of the cogito ergo sum that harbors personal existence. In the second case, it is the cogito. We should note that the subject of the cogito is not just the logical subject of the proposition, but also the real object of the evil genius's action. If the subject were merely the subject of judgment, it could not resist the falseness of judgment. However, the validity of the cogito resists error in the judgment that constitutes it, because this judgment is not grasped only as a proposition, but also as an act, and the act conserves its reality, whether the proposition be true or false. Here the Kokito provides the privileged case of a proposition whose object is the act that formulates it. This proposition therefore takes its validity from the act that posits it because it states nothing but this act. It is true absolutely. This proposition is to itself its own object and its own signification. We could say that it is automatically true, true by its own functioning, for it suffices unto itself. Its particularity is consequently constituted by a pure universality that is not logical but is itself a universality of being. The cogito is an absolute generation of signification and being, of essence and existence. There is coincidence of essence and existence in the cogito, just as there is coincidence of the subject who thinks and the object he thinks, i.e. himself, at the instant in which he thinks himself. The cogito realizes the identity of a truth and a reality. The cogito as proposition is a real truth, just as the act that thinks the cogito is a true reality. The cogito establishes a reciprocity of truth and reality, which construct one another according to a schema of recurrent causality. This reaction nevertheless must be introduced under conditions such that it can be maintained. The conditions are conditions of the absolute independence of the subject who who thinks. The absence of agitation and preoccupations and then the exercise of methodical doubt create the conditions of recurrent causality. Under these conditions, which are necessary for reactivity, the cogito is defined in advance as that which can be achieved only for a totally independent individual being. It is therefore natural that Descartes does not seek to establish the personal character of the subject of the cogito, since the conditions under which the cogito is achieved are the conditions of the absolute personal independence of the being who thinks. Such as he appears in the cogito, the individual is therefore the being who expresses himself in a conscious operation. Here's the logical operation of methodical doubt. The individual exists before the cogito because the condition of individuality is necessary for the entire progress of doubt. And it could be said that if doubt is not logically necessary for the proposition of the cogito, It is in some way energetically necessary for it. Individuality pre exists as engine and subject of doubt, as requirement of certainty. Yeah, let's stop here. Um, This is another long paragraph. Right, so here Simondon is um, um, sort of developing this notion of the cogito as um, the point of transition between truth and reality. Um, So the cogito is a proposition, um, I think, therefore I am. is is, you know a proposition that we can entertain that that you can assert or think of um but at the same time the through the act of thinking that proposition you in fact make it true you um there there's uh this sort of immediate um connection between the truth of the proposition and the um the action of thinking of the proposition um and so this is a sort of unique property of the kogito as a proposition. It, it's a, a proposition that makes itself true uh, just by virtue of being thought. Um, whereas any other proposition, like you know it's raining outside, is is made true by something distinct from uh, the act of thinking it. You can you can think that proposition without it being true. Uh, and so um, this is sort of the um, uh, particularity of this uh, proposition is that it has this sort of um, uh, pure universality um, um, that that it uh, sort of has this immediate transition between its uh, its uh, thought and its truth. Um, and um, the, the the other sort of consequence of this is that there's no need to sort of, argue for the personal reality of the uh, entity who thinks the cogito, uh, because um, it's only possible to uh, to perform the cogito and perform the whole operation of um, putting all of your knowledge into doubt uh, and and then reaching the cogito as the uh, indubitable foundation of knowledge. Um, it's only possible to do this if you are um, in certain sort of intellectual conditions, you have to sort of be free from passions and uh, uh, the sort of partiality of the subject that we talked about earlier. Um, you have to. It's only the the person who is sort of free from all of these external considerations that can actually perform the cogito in its uh, in its full. Um, uh, sort of manifestation in, in the way that uh, Descartes does in the meditations. Uh, and so because of this, um, the the question of, you know, whether there's a, a sort of personal um, uh, existence of the entity who performs the cogito is is kind of irrelevant. It, it's only um, a person in this sort of universal circumstance who can perform the cogito. And, that, uh, and so there's a kind of immediate um, uh, transition from the personal universality to the universality of the cogito.
1: For some reason I read this is like a, an, another one of those kind of sociological points about how you can only think the cogito if you are in conditions of, of solitude similar to those in which Descartes was working, which he referred to back in the, in the From the Renaissance to the 17th century section, where he was talking about Mersenne and how he made it possible for Descartes to preserve his solitude.
0: Yeah, I think um the solitude of Descartes' work is um a, a sort of um empirical manifestation of the um solitude necessary or the independence necessary to perform the cogito um uh, in this adequate way. So um to actually pursue this path of methodical doubt and um you know put all of your knowledge into question and uh and then reach the the kogito as the the point of foundation for a new construction of knowledge. To actually do this whole intellectual exercise, you have to have the sort of independence and freedom of mind to um, to be able to to pull this off. Um, uh, and and so the sort of uh, the solitude in which Descartes is working is a kind of um, realization of this intellectual independence. Um, uh, as opposed to, I think, uh, a condition for it. That makes sense. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I think um, there's also um, sort of more sociological explanations of that of that um, solitude uh, of Descartes, um, because he was um, in particular worried about the Inquisition. Um, he, uh, you know, he saw what happened to Galileo um, as a result of um, his researches, and and so he. He's always very careful to um, state his uh, his ideas in a way that doesn't uh, conflict with church doctrine. Um, like in his treatise on the world, he he gives an account of he gives a, a heliocentric account of the worlds, but he he says at the beginning, um, this is sort of an intellectual exercise. We we are sort of um, seeing. We we want to sort of uh, construct uh, an account of how. God might've created the world in such a way that it would present the same appearances to us as, as it does. Um, uh, and so if we did that, we would, uh, you know, doing this exercise, we, we start from the sun as the center of the solar system, um, as opposed to the earth, just because it's a, a simpler hypothesis. Uh, it makes our theory simpler. Um, but we know from church doctrine that in fact it's the earth that's the center of the universe. Um, and, and so he's, he's very careful to, um, sort of uh, separate out um, this physical theory that uh, he treats as sort of a, a fiction uh, or at least he presents as a kind of fiction um, from the the reality of the motion of the earth um, uh, around the Sun which he he doesn't want to assert as something real um, at least in that text uh, you know because he's being careful about the not conflicting with church doctrine. I see
1: this. That is interesting. Uh, actually, how do you feel about calling it a night here? I'm kind of late here.
0: Uh, yeah, sure. That, that works for me. Um, okay. That's about an hour and a half um, for our recording. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's see. Where did I stop? Let me just find um, right top of five sixty two. Okay. Uh, let me see if I can figure out how to turn off these bots.
1: You know which line that was. Uh, where we ended
0: uh i think we're right at the beginning of, fi- of 562 the the first full sentence on 562
1: okay uh my pages are slightly different
0: oh right yeah, so
1: so it's, it's pretty pretty no reality. okay great thank you
0: okay let's try this okay i think that worked um yeah so thanks for coming out uh thanks everyone who's listening and uh hope to see you next week